Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Turn with me to Genesis 37. Somebody's excited about it. Genesis 37, and um, we're going to be just right here in the first couple of verses. Um, This is the story of Joseph, and many of you know the story of Joseph. If you don't, I want to encourage you, take, take Genesis 37 and read it through the next handful of chapters and really read this story. Go in deep. It's a, it's, there's so much text and so many details that I'm not going to summarize it and I'm not going to read it. You just need to know it. But I want to focus in on just a couple of things. So in chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 37, verse 2, uh, it says, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. So remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And Jacob's name was turned to Israel, and Israel then fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes went on to become the nation of Israel. Uh, and so Joseph one of those sons, the last, it says this, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Does anybody have a, a sibling that was always the rat? Yeah, we, so, yeah, thank you, I see that hand. And um, so I... There was always, every family has like a Karen, and they just don't let you buy. We have one too. Finn won't let anybody off the seatbelt hook. We get in the car, and he's like literally the seatbelt monitor in every drive. He's looking around. He's making sure everybody's right. And he's doing it in the name of safety, but the rest of the kids are despising it, you know? And so I, I think that Joseph was a little bit of the rat. He was a little bit of the narc. And so he goes out. He's with the other sons. And what you want to believe Knowing that, okay, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then soon to be Israel, and now soon to have 12 sons, and the 12 sons are the, the patriarchs now of Israel, and we want to believe that these guys were like righteous, holy, and upstanding individuals because they're sort of like, you know, the ancestors of the faith, and it, that could not be further from the truth. Like, these guys were broken, and they were sinful, and they were murderous, and hateful, and stealing, and lying, and a lot like us. And so I, I feel like really getting acquainted with these stories, instead of just throwing out names and singing songs, like, we got to understand that Jacob was a deceiver. We've got to understand what God was bringing people out of all along, and it helps to give some context to what he's doing in our lives. Amen? So it says, when he was 17, he was out with all the other brothers pasturing the flock, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. And we also want to believe that the patriarchs weren't playing favorites, but they were. Because he was the son, oh, here we go, of his old age. Anybody like one of your parents' first kids, and then like a couple marriages later or something, now they're having kids, and it's like, oh, those kids get all the Christmas gifts when we were kids, you know? You took the shotgun outside and fired it up in the air and said, Santa Claus isn't coming this year. (laughs) You know who you are, and you were the first round. You were like the trial round. You were like the, hey, let's get all of the mistakes out of the way, and then we'll have the other family. Lord, help us. God's healing all of that this morning, all right? So just brace yourself. He's healing all of it. 
Okay, so he loved that son more than the first round of sons. And it says it right here because he was the son of his old age and he made him a multicolored tunic. Some of your Bibles say very colored. Some of you say a coat of many colors. And bless you, babe. And um, I just want to say, so if you didn't know, last week was my birthday. I turned 39. And my wife, who knows me and knows that I am a lover of Israeli antiquities, she actually purchased for me Joseph's coat of many colors. So I have it here. This is it. And she had to take a shout wipe to the blood stains, but she got them off. <laughs> this is the coat of many colors. I want to put this on so you, there's some context here. This is it's just, I can feel the power of the generations <laughs> in this. And so this is Joseph's coat of many colors that his father made for him. And I just, I want to wear this. Um, and this was expensive. Fortunately, we have a pastoral discretionary account for things like this. <laughs> this, was, this was really expensive. It was almost as much as that Shroud of Turin that David uh, donated last year. So I, uh, I don't know why. I don't know why that was so expensive. It was proven to be a fake, but either way, we have it in our archives underground. So this is what it looked like. If you were always wondering, was it a patchwork? Was it plaid? Was it stripes? Was it whatever? This is it. This is the actual coat of many colors. And as Joseph put it on, it sort of, it sort of compounded what his brothers already knew, what they hated about him. It actually, the Bible says they hated it about him. And this sort of like really drives it home. But he put it on and he wore it. And you know what I mean when I say he wore it. He like wore it. He like pimped it. He walked around like, did you see this? Did you see what dad made? And so he goes out and his brothers saw that their father loved him more in verse four than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Verse five, then Joseph had a dream. Then Joseph had a dream. Now, not really much of his brothers despising him had begun to manifest yet. They were giving him a little bit of the silent treatment, like, like they would all make a plan and leave him out of it. Anybody that sibling? You're like, oh, the whole family's out at the beach house this week, and I guess, okay, we're here, that's fine. Um, didn't, I didn't get, you didn't get the, oh, you must, oh, did you change your, no, I have the same number I've had ever since you've always been not calling it. And so, you know who you are. You're the, you're the, uh, you're the, the black sheep or whatever. This church is full of them. So don't feel alone. You're in good company. So Joseph now has a dream and the dream that he has puts him in a very, uh, precarious position. Because the dream is actually the father beginning to reveal to him a plan. And this would be a plan that would sustain the promise through an incredibly difficult time. Through something that would otherwise have cut off that promise. And that plan comes in the form of a dream and it comes to Joseph. Now as Joseph shares that dream, and it's basically like, hey, I had this dream and um, you're all bowing down to me, okay? That's like 
you know, I've heard people preach on this before, and they're like, this was Joseph's big mistake. And it's like, well, if this really was the dream, you know, maybe he could have just had a little bit more, you know, compassion in how he said it, or maybe just not said it at all. Anybody have a dream, and you're like, I should probably keep that to myself. So that kind of dream. But he has a dream nonetheless, and because he shares it, and then he has another one, and because he shares them, uh, what ends up happening is the brothers are like, that's it. We've had enough of this guy. And um, they plan to kill him. They don't kill him. Instead, one of his brothers is like, no, let's not. It's Reuben. And how many love a good Reuben? And, and Reuben shows up and he's like, let's not do that. And so they throw him in a pit. They take off this coat of many colors and they stain it with the blood of a goat. And at the time, they didn't have DNA uh, testing and things like that. And so, you know, when you saw a coat that you made for somebody all covered in blood that, that his brothers bring back from the field, you're like, a wild animal killed him because that was not, you know, apparently that uncommon in this part of the world. And so, meanwhile, back out on the pasture lands, dude's in a pit and they sell him to a, a traveling band of merchants, and he ends up going into Egypt and being sold as a slave. Now, while he's there, he's purchased by a man named Potiphar, taken to Potiphar's house, and entrusted with all of Potiphar's household, because how many of you know that in the middle of all hell breaking loose, the favor of the Lord is still on us? Amen? No matter what is going on, you may have to like look a different way to see it, but the favor of the Lord was on Joseph even in this moment. And so he's purchased by Potiphar, goes to Potiphar's house, and becomes uh, sort of like the chief of his household. Well, now Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph because he's a good-looking younger guy. And uh, this is like, you know, it'd be like you hire a pool guy. You know what I'm saying? And the pool guy comes over while you're at work. And the pool guy's out in a robe, not like unlike this one right here. And he's doing the pool. And now your wife is coming out to like make sure he's doing, not missing any spots, you know? And so that's what's happening. But the wife is starting to like Joseph. And she's trying to lure him in sexually. And what ends up happening is she... she tries to seduce him, and he says, no, I've been entrusted with this whole house, and I'm not going to do that to Potiphar. And so she says, oh, yes, you will, and she goes and grabs for his coat. Babe, come and grab for my coat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she goes and grabs for his coat, and he takes off, leaving the coat, runs from the house, stripped, and now accused. And so Potiphar's wife says, no, it was him who was trying to rape me. And now he's put in jail. And you, you've got to go in and read the story for yourself because it's like this guy can't catch a break. No matter what, it's like now he's in jail and now he starts interpreting dreams in jail. And, and some of those uh, turn out good and some of those turn out bad. But in the end, he ends up interpreting a dream for the Pharaoh, which now becomes the very means by which the entire empire of Egypt is sustained through a drought and a famine, all right? You're gonna have to draw a lot of your own conclusions here because we don't have time to really get in. But what I wanna do is point out a couple of things. Joseph was hated. He was lied about. He was stripped naked. He was thrown into a pit. He was trafficked. He was sexually assaulted. He was falsely accused of attempted rape and he was wrongly imprisoned. But it all started with a dream. Yeah. 
All the rejection, all the abandonment, all the false accusations, all of the being lied on and cheated out of what was his, it all started with a dream. That dream, like I said, was God beginning to reveal how he would sustain the promise for his people. But what's interesting is that when we dream, we become the target of rejection and abandonment. You see, these two things, it's this idea and some of the stuff that Kim was talking about this morning, these, this idea of rejection and the wounds caused by rejection, this is not just by chance. No, these things are targeted. These things are designed strategically to sabotage dreams, the dreams that God gives us. And that takes the shape of anything, uh, any, you, you name it. These are as varied as the colors in Joseph's coat. Some of us have experienced this on some level. You've had a dream, and maybe it was the right thing, and maybe it was the wrong thing, but you shared it. Maybe you shared it with the wrong person. Maybe you shared it at the wrong time. Maybe you shared it with the wrong heart because you're still human. Just because you have a dream doesn't mean that you're suddenly getting everything right. Take Joseph. Maybe your dream was to get married. And you got rejected. Maybe rejection isn't a bad enough word for what happened to you. Maybe you got jilted at the altar. Maybe you were cheated on. And now that rejection and that abandonment and that alienation, it is targeted not just to make you have a bad day, but to destroy the very dream God gave you. It's intentional. It's by design. Rejection and abandonment. Before we can understand rejection and abandonment, before we can just say, oh, we have a spirit of adoption and we're going to have these foster homes and we're going to adopt these kids that are in need and we're going to do all this stuff. I think sometimes we go into that, and like Kim said, it can be scary. Why? Because we're coming into agreement with a dream, and we become the target of rejection and abandonment, whether that's on the receiving end or on the giving end. As a country, we had a dream. In fact, before America was a country, it was a dream. I think what's crazy about that, this idea of, I know in, in years past, um, we've called them dreamers, young people coming in. And uh, what's, what, what's interesting to me about this concept of a dream is I believe there are people who have never set foot in this country who are actually more American by right of the dream, more American than many people who are nationally born citizens. It's a dream, and that dream inspires, in hell, targeted rejection, targeted abandonment. We, wanna, we want this person to know that because of this dream, they have been refused, they have been hated, they have been trafficked, they have been sold, they have been devalued and deprecated. And so for as long as that's the enemy's formula against us, and for as long as we're ignorant of it, we will continue to discard dreams and dreamers. Yeah. We will, we will uh, create entire campaigns, even as a church, 
around this idea. I know uh, I've been in churches where, you know, it's like the only thing worse than hell is something new. <laughs> you ever been in a church like that? It's like, you know, they, that's the, on, the only thing worse than, you know, Satan himself uh, incarnating and walking in is the idea of changing something that's always been that way. And, uh, and so if, you're, if you've ever been in a church like this, and you made the mistake of having a dream, release the kraken, okay? Because we will eat you alive, chew you up, and spit you out and make an example of how we don't do new, okay? So what was your dream? Was it to have kids? Was it to have kids? Was that always part of your dream? Maybe you're married and maybe you're saying, okay, we're gonna have kids, and, and so... As the Lord gave you a dream, a dream that was part of a mandate going back to the very beginning of having kids, what ends up happening is we start to take on uh, the weight of not being able to. We start to take on infertility. We take on barrenness. We take on what you said, the, the people who come and say, oh, it's something in the water, people who say it's something spiritual. I've heard people uh, just recklessly diagnose folks who aren't being healed of something or are unable to have kids. Guys, we've got to grow up a little bit. We've got to move past this. Oh, you know, it must just be that there's sin in your life. And that's why, okay, well, is there sin in all of our lives? And why is that? No, we've got to grow up. We've got to understand that when there is a dream, there is targeted rejection. There is targeted abandonment. And for as long as those wounds and the trauma of that rejection and abandonment can take a place and take a hold and that offense can be held, our dreams are put on hold. God's dreams for us are put on hold. So what was it? Maybe to own a home. Maybe to have a ministry. Maybe you're in a place right now and you're like, okay, our dream was to be in a place of financial freedom. Our dream was to be in a place to be able to give uh, generously and sacrificially. And right now, it's like we don't have enough to pay our own bills. Uh, our dream was to be able to, you know, be a part of uh, something big. And whatever uh, limitations or parameters there are in my lives right now are defining um, a limit for me. And now I can't, I can't, I can't. But really what it is, is we're missing the fact that the enemy has drawn a target on us to be rejected. He doesn't care if you're alive. He doesn't need to kill you. He just needs to kill a dream. He needs to kill the way that you were the open door for God to sustain the promises, for the kingdom to come, for his will to be done. To have a ministry. Even if it doesn't seem like there's a direct link. I know I had to navigate what felt like an ocean of rejection in order for me to be a part of this church. And I know some of you in here have heard my testimony so many times and you're like, not that again. And don't worry, I'm not going to say it again. But I am going to say this, that in the middle of it, you can't see it. In the middle of it, all you can feel and all you know 
is that you messed up. And that's the lie. That's the lie. You see, rejection doesn't work without an accusation. And that accusation is you're not good enough or you're trying to cheat the system or there's no way you heard God. Anybody ever say that to you? There's no way you heard God. I'll say there's no way you heard God and didn't mess it up a little. Because <laughs> we all do that. But that's okay. There's grace for that. Where the grace begins to lift is when we come into agreement. Where the grace begins to shift is when we start to familiarize ourselves with the rejection and we start to identify ourselves as, well, I tried that, but it failed. And so, I tried that, but it didn't work. And now, whatever comes after those words, saints, Whatever fills in that blank will define whether or not the Father can continue to birth through you his kingdom. Because if your words were, well, we tried that, but it failed, and so now we're just going to move in a completely different direction. You want to hear something crazy? Um, there's a Christian band out there by the name of U2. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or not. They play Moncayla? I don't know. I don't listen. I don't know. Anyway. They tell it in some Christian bookstores that are like borderline Christian, not like, you know, Morningstar or something like that. But um, anyway, you too, some of you may not know this, but you too, if you walk into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, now, I would never go into a place like that. <laughs> but if you were to ever walk into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the first thing you see right when you walk in is a glass case with five letters inside it. And you know what those letters are? Those are each a letter from a record company telling you too that they didn't have what it takes to make it. Rejecting. You're not good enough. Your sound is just, it's not there. Uh, thanks, but our people will call your people. Rejection. 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 Some of us, we wouldn't make it to five letters. We wouldn't wait for the sixth. We wouldn't wait for the second. Some of us, the second that somebody in a suit told us that we weren't good enough, somebody with a title said, you're not anointed. Somebody in authority said, you're not called. Somebody said, no, that won't work because of your past. We counter rejection with acceptance. The acceptance that we wanted to hear, we turn it back on the rejection and we just accept it. We were primed for acceptance because it was a dream. And in our minds and in our hearts, it makes sense. In our minds and in our hearts, we're like, I get it. I can see this. It's going to happen. And so we're primed for acceptance, and the enemy knows it. So we're actually at our most vulnerable when we share a dream. When we sit down at a table and we begin to talk about what it is that God's put on our heart, we're most vulnerable. And from that place of vulnerability, when rejection comes, we're easily broken. 
And so we don't really think we have a choice but to accept it. And so it becomes that identity. And we start to call ourselves washed up and burnt out before it ever actually even had a chance to be a fire. Joseph's refusal, though, to perpetuate rejection and abandonment made him the conduit by which covenant could be perpetuated. See, what happens to Joseph is he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. And that dream that Pharaoh had had, it was seven fat cows and seven emaciated cows. And Joseph said, that dream means there's going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of dearth. And we need to store up during the abundance so that we have enough to make it through the dearth. And so Pharaoh, impressed by his intuitiveness uh, and dream interpretation, says, all right, why don't you help us out with that? What are you thinking? And so he says, well, we've got to build storehouses. And he comes up with like the first government program, really, for feeding. And everything is bought by Egypt, stored up, and then, uh, and then dispersed throughout the famine to keep Egypt alive. It was all Joseph's idea. It was all Joseph's overseeing it. And during that time, that same famine is what brought his father and his brothers to Egypt. That same famine is what bring them back to the conduit through which the covenant would be perpetuated. And some of us are in this room because of a famine. Some of us, we were out somewhere where there was the fat of the land. We were out somewhere living it up in our churches, in our ministries, in our homes, in our marriages, and whatever, and a famine hit, and you weren't ready for it. And that famine spiritually is what brought you here. And we are being sustained here. And God is dealing out and dispersing and distributing what is required to sustain us. But saints, what's so incredible here is that Joseph refuses to perpetuate the rejection. He refuses to turn it around on his brothers. They're literally on their face in front of him, knowing that the only way they and their families survive is if this man who, by the way, they didn't know it was Joseph, Okay, because this 17-year-old kid grew up. Not knowing it was him, but knowing that unless Egypt showed them mercy, they would surely die. And so what does he do? He gives them the choicest land in Egypt. He talks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, this is your family. They can have whatever they want. And so Joseph makes sure to see to it that his family is taken care of. And because he takes care of them, the covenant is perpetuated instead of the rejection. So Joseph saves his brothers, but I feel like for many of us, there's a difference here and there's a line drawn. It's like if Satan can't stop you from fulfilling your dream, he'll stop you from fulfilling God's plan for your dream. So let's just say it has to do with your gifts and you come up through the church with your gifts. Let's just say you're a singer or a musician and you're fighting to move with your anointing and your gifts up through the church and there's rejection and there's abandonment and there's alienation and there's hate and there's whatever. Um, I was just talking to my mom this week about a church that we went to as kids and how there came a point in, the, in our time towards the end of our stay at that church where, uh, where a couple of families came together 
and they approached the pastor and they said, um, this is a big problem that the Lens kids uh, are like all doing all the stuff here. We've been here longer. Our kids want to do this stuff too. And so the stuff was like play the piano on the worship team or sing or like lead a group or whatever it was. This is petty, small church stuff. And, but what it was was there was a rejection taking place because of what God had called us to. And even as little kids, I can remember one of the loudest things about that church experience. We were there for six years or something. One of the loudest things was that family's, those couple of families' bitterness towards us because of how God was using us there. We then have the opportunity at any point to continue saying, okay, we're going to get hard and fight this fight. We're going to get callous and fight this fight. And by God, we're going to win no matter who we have to run over to do it. Now, on the other end of that, we may actually come out victorious. We may finally get the letter from the record company that says, hey, you've been accepted and we'd love to back your music. But what happens is we've decided in our hearts that we're going to perpetuate the rejection and the abandonment. But note Joseph. By the end of his life, he's not known as a dreamer anymore. He's known as a dream interpreter. He's called on by the highest levels of authority in the land to do what none of the other magic tricks and wizards and wise men can do. It's not to have a dream. It's to listen to a dream. It's to understand that the next 17-year-old boy who comes through here all torn and naked and broken, despised, rejection, and abandoned, is to say, hey, that kid has a dream. The next time, uh, the next time Brandon and Lisa Beth pull up in their van and you see a dozen young men get out, it's to not see a bunch of boys marked by rejection and abandonment is to see a dozen dreams pile out of that van. It's to recognize that part of the dearth and the famine that we may be experiencing is because we have put to death the dreams of those who were called to sustain us. It's to say the very pastors and men and women of God, the prophets who've been speaking, who've been calling, who've been issuing warnings, who've been scheduling appointments with eternity to see the kingdom come. Those are the very ones, like Jesus said, how I've longed to bring you under my wings like a mother hen does to her chicks. And yet there hasn't been a prophet that's come down the pipe that you haven't put to death. You may be in this room and you're the dreamer. You're in that stage right now. And you're trying to make it to a place where somebody can hear it. You're trying to crawl in. Maybe you crawled in this morning spiritually, bloodied, beaten, sold, and sold out. But the dream's still there. And the Lord still has a plan for it. And I'm going to tell you this morning, if you refuse to perpetuate the rejection, you come in, you're on guard. I remember Heather Ballack, she had a vision one time of our church, and she said everybody was coming in and it looked like, you remember Mel Gibson in Mad Max? You remember Mad Max? Tina Turner in the Thunderdome? No, anybody? Okay, it's a Christian movie, came out of the 80s. <laughs> anyway, you, re you remember it. David was actually in that movie. 
So <laughs> he was Tina Turner's stunt double. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. Anyway, hey, I know, I'm, just, I'm killing dreams up here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to be that guy. So, so if you remember it, they, they were living in a dystopian, apocalyptic world. And, and what they did, they all had to arm themselves. And there was no armor, so you had to make it. And you literally would take pieces of scrap metal, like, like toaster ovens and cookie sheets and whatever you could, and you would find a way to fashion them into clothing. And you would arm yourself with whatever you could to stop a spear or a, an arrow or a bullet. And Heather Ballack said, do you remember that movie? I'm saying, of course I remember that movie. I was in that movie. And she said, she said, I see people coming into this church and I see spiritually that they've armed themselves with anything they can find out of fear of rejection. Would you stand with me this morning? Saints, I'm going to let you go, but I want to tell you this. Satan tried with us. He tried. In fact, I'll say he did his worst. Targeting with rejection and abandonment. I look across our leadership. I look across our eldership. Many of whom have been asked to leave or kicked out of other churches because of the freedom that they have, because of the anointing that's on them, because of the burden to see the kingdom come. Rejected, abandoned. But I want you to know, because they preserved that dream, this is a church that will protect yours. There is an armor for you, but it's the armor of God. There is a shield that goes on us, but it's not to defend us. It's not to defend us from the, the, the stuff that we've wrestled with all along. It's just meant to protect that which God has given us. And so if you're in this place and you're a dreamer, get ready. Because part of that dream coming to pass is to become a dream interpreter yourself. To become somebody who, when, when people come to speak to you, and some of you in here, you didn't even realize it, but, but it's starting to add up now. Why are people coming to me? Why are people asking to meet me for coffee and then they just share their life with me and their heart and their vision and their dreams? What is it about me? And it's not adding up to you until now. And right now, it's this. Because you're the safe place. Because you carry that dream interpretation. I'll just call it an anointing. Because it's so sparse, it's so rare. But we need to be a house that can look at the abandoned, that can look at the rejected and say, there's a dream that's worth saving. We need to be able to look at a generation of fatherlessness that's coming up through the ranks, regardless of, of whether or not they're in the system or, or, or DCYF has been notified or they've been taken out of a home or whatever. Fatherlessness is rampant, and it's up to us to be able to say, hey, 
there's still a dream there worth saving. Hey, there's a dreamer there. There's a plan there. There's a, a perpetuity and, and a potential and a possibility if we can just get our eyes off the rejection, even if they themselves have come into agreement with it, even if they've already taken the identity, I'm nothing more than a, oh, no, 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 no. This needs to be a church of dreamers. This needs to be a place where vision can come alive. This needs to be a house where those things are protected. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you for Joseph. I thank you for his story. And, Lord, I thank you that he didn't hold on to the hurt. He didn't hold on to the bitterness. He let that stuff go in order to fulfill your plan for his dream. So, Father, you know us in here. You know the dreamers and the dreams. You know the visions that you've given. And you know even the places where we've begun to fight for those things, even at the cost of losing what they're really for. We've begun to, to, to paint ourselves with war paint and strap on armor to fight through this and keep our dream alive, even if it means putting your plan for that dream to death. And so, God, we come back to your heart in this. We come back to the dream giver. Lord, that you would do what you've been doing all along, that you would continue to bring your kingdom through us, that we would be a conduit through which covenant can be sustainable for your church and for your people. So we love you, God. We give you all the glory and the honor, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.